Today we're going to be in Romans 7 and we're asking a question about why is it difficult to do the right thing because it is kind of difficult to do the right thing and so we're going to talk about why and um, so I thought, I thought I'd start with a little uh, cartoon because temptation happens to us and it looks kind of like that. Let me tell you a little story. There's a little boy and, and he was at church and it was communion Sunday and his mom leaned over and said... Um, you can't take communion, you're not old enough yet, you don't quite understand it, so just let it pass. And you can tell the boy's about four or five years old, he's a little frustrated with all that. And so the offering was next, and they were passing the plate, and the mom said, you know, you need to put your quarter in the offering plate. And he kind of loudly whispered, if I don't eat, I don't pay. Uh, <laughs> so it starts young. I mean, you kind of, young, you kind of get this, that, hey, I'm, I'm maybe not going to do the right thing. And the truth of the matter is we all struggle with this, followers of Christ, not followers of Christ, uh, if you're a believer, unbeliever. The whole idea of doing the right thing, and, and a lot of times you know to do the right thing and you don't do it, and a lot of times we just do the wrong thing even though we know we shouldn't do these things. Now, what I love about the Bible is that it's just real honest about where people are and what they do, and, and we have heroes of the faith, and you've got people like David. If you look at the Old Testament, David in the New Testament is called a man after God's own heart. Well, when you hear that title, David was a man after God's own heart, one would suspect, or at least presume perhaps, that David lived a pretty great life as far as following God's orders. But then when you actually dive into David's life, he made a lot of mistakes. He didn't listen to God when he knew to do certain things. He had an affair. He had a guy killed. I mean, it's not like he did little minor. He, he didn't jaywalk. I mean, it wasn't little stuff. He did really, really big things that were wrong. And yet he still called a man after God's own heart. So we have people in Scripture who are biblical heroes who still have a tendency to do the wrong things. So today we're in Romans chapter 7, and we're going to look at about three, four verses there. We're, these are going to be our launching verses, but they're written by a guy named Paul. And let's remember who Paul is. Paul was a guy who loved Jesus with great affection. In fact, he suffered for his faith. And something that we often don't, uh, we can't really uh, resonate with because we don't suffer for our faith very much. But Paul was a guy... Because he believed in Jesus, he went and planted churches, and when he planted churches, there were often times when he had to suffer, and he did suffer for his faith. So this is the guy who writes these words about temptation and how he deals with it. Look what he says. I realize, he said, that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions, something has gone wrong deep within me and it gets the better of me every time. Now this is arguably the greatest Christian who ever walked the planet saying these things. And then he says, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. What is amazing to me about these words and what gives me a little bit of comfort is the fact that even perhaps the greatest Christian of all time, struggled with doing the right thing. So, as a word of encouragement to all of us today, at least we're not alone. You know, misery does love company. And if Paul struggled with it, 
it's likely that we're going to struggle with it too. It doesn't help that we live in a society where we're told there are no consequences. In fact, you remember Vegas' slogan was, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm surprised, honestly, that they never got sued over false advertising because you know as well as I do, when you do wrong things, there are consequences to wrong things. It, it just, it's how it works. The Bible says you reap what you sow. It's the exact opposite of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because it doesn't always. And sometimes you can brush it under the rug or you can forget about it, but there are consequences to bad behavior. This is, this is predictable. And so today we're going to talk about why is it, here I am, I, I I've given my heart to Jesus. Let's just assume all of us in the room, and I know that's probably not true, but let's make this assumption. I have given my heart to Christ. I've asked him to forgive my sins and to guide my life, and I'm trying to live in relationship with Jesus. All right, so let's, just, let's make this assumption. That's me, and that's you. Then why do I struggle with doing the right thing? Because what I would really like is I'm not a Christian, and then I step over the line of faith, and now I'm a Christian, and now it's easy for me to do the right thing. But I haven't found that to be true, so why is that? Now, if you have an outline, you can look at it, but the first point is this. Doing wrong is in our genes. We have a tendency, a natural inclination to do the wrong thing. It, it, it just is. So let me, let, let's, let's play a game here. Um, you have dirty clothes. You've just taken them off. The hamper is six feet over there. Which is easier? To walk all the way over there? That's like two steps. Or to take them off and drop them in the floor. Which is easier? In the floor. Right, that's right, that's right. This isn't that hard. I'm, trying, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make it hard for you. Um, men, your, your wives are in the kitchen doing the dishes and you're watching television, and it's not even something that you like. Your remote's not working, and it's on Say Yes to the Dress, and you don't even care about that, you know? Which is easier, for you just to sit there and act like Say Yes to the Dress is something you care about, or to walk into the kitchen and help? Which is easier? Yeah, sit there. That's right, that's right. right, I'll give you a, a a pictorial which is easier? Heaven or not heaven? I mean, which is easier for you? Okay. There's something in Scripture called original sin. The Bible teaches this, that, that we have a sin nature. Now, I'm going to hit time out just for a second, because I was thinking about it this morning. I was looking at my notes, and I'm like... All right, make sure you make the point that this is an explanation. It's not an excuse. This is an explanation. It's not an excuse because here's our tendency, even in our sin nature, our tendency is going to be to say, well, I can't help myself. This is in the genes for me. Let me tell you something. I had two grandfathers who were alcoholics, my mom's dad and my father's dad. They were both raging alcoholics. They both were horrible to their families um, if you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers, anybody ever seen that movie? It's a great movie. There's a scene in the movie, and it's set in the 50s, I think, where um, the drunken dad comes into the basketball game and embarrasses his son, if you'll recall that. I mean, you can imagine. Well, my mother lived that. She was a, she was a cheerleader. Now, this is many, many years ago, but she tells me about it. She was a cheerleader, and her drunken dad came into the gym. 
And you can imagine what that does to a teenage girl when her dad shows up drunk. So I have in my genes a propensity toward alcoholism. And when I was 18 years old, 17, 18 years old, I started going down that path. But I didn't stay on that path. So just because your genes push you in a direction, that doesn't mean you have to go that direction. So this is an explanation. It's not an excuse. But we have to understand, we have something called a sin nature. It talks about it here back in Romans again. Adam's one sin. So Adam would be our great-great-great-granddaddy to the hundredth power or something like that. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. <laughs> Yippee. I mean, that's, a horrible, that's horrible news. But, but here's one of the best words in, in the, all of the Bible is but. B-U-T. It's great. Because like this is, this is bad, but... And sometimes it says, but now... Those are great words. But... Christ's one act of righteousness, he came, he lived a sinless life, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. And this verse is just full of hope. And Adam kind of got us on the wrong path, and Jesus gets us back on the right path. It used to be on Discovery Channel, they would have these shows where they would, uh, they would have kids who had, uh, were born with deformities, cleft palate or uh, just something like that. And the, the show was uh, watching, and they were a little hard to watch sometimes, watching surgeons fix what was naturally wrong. Now, those were fascinating to me. And, and this kind of what happens with Jesus and us. We have this sin nature, and Jesus fixes this sin nature for us. Um, now look at what it says in James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? We have this dual nature. We have our sin nature that kind of wants to keep pulling us to the wrong side. And we have Christ when we ask Jesus into our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit that helps is trying to pull us to the right track or stay on the right track. That, that's kind of what happens in our lives. So we, number one, we're born with a sin nature. You want to know how you know... I watched some babies come in today. Oh, they're, aren't babies the best? Why are babies the best? Because they're so innocent and, and they're so cute and they, they coo and goo and poo. They do all that stuff, you know, all the ooze. And we love the babies. And then the babies turn two. What, what is that called? Does anybody know what that's called? The terrific twos? Is that what it's called? The terrible twos. That's right. Nobody calls it the terrific twos unless you're stupid uh, because... This sweet little bundle of ooeyness. I mean, we love this little kid. They hit two. And then it's mine and no. And you're not the boss of me. I mean, that happens. And that is sort of an outpouring of the sin nature. Okay? We, we ha we're born with it. It's, it's an explanation, not an excuse. But, but there's more. Sometimes we set ourselves up. For failure. Have you ever done that? Have you ever set yourself up for failure? There's a story about an old boy from Kentucky, and he leaves the great state for some reason, and he goes off and he makes his fortune in New York. Now, going from Kentucky to South Carolina makes sense. Going from Kentucky to New York, I don't understand. Anyway, he did this, okay? He goes 
from the, from the great state of Kentucky. He makes his fortune in New York. He gets to retirement age. You know, he's ready to retire. He's, and everybody knows that you want to go home when you retire. And so he, he buys him a plot of land in Kentucky. He's going to move back. He's going to hunt and fish and, and you know, die in Kentucky. And he, he has some house plans drawn up by the greatest architect in New York City. A friend of his makes the blueprints. Comes to Kentucky, he's out in you know, Appalachian Mountains, out in the hills of Kentucky. And he gets a contractor and he says, here are the blueprints. You can read blueprints, right? Because it is Kentucky. And uh, the guy said, yeah, I can read blueprints. He says, okay, I want you to build my house just like this. The old boy looks at it and he said, well, I can see a mistake right here, right here. And the guy kind of, it kind of rolls his eyes. It's like, there are no mistakes here. The greatest architectural firm and the top architect in New York made these plans for this home. I want you to build it just like the blueprint. Can you do that? Because if you can, I'll find somebody that can. Old boy said, well, I can do it. But I'm going to tell you right here. The way these are drawn, the outhouse is inside the building. And and, uh, if you want it that way, if you want it that way. Okay, so that's funnier than y'all laughed. Uh, Really, that's that's a good joke. That's a good joke. I might not have told it well, but you, you're supposed. This is a place of grace, and you got to give me some love. Okay. Anyway, anyway, Jesus taught us, "Lead us not into temptation." And we look at that, and it's like, okay, well, God, may, maybe God sometimes leads us into temptation. I don't really, I don't need God to help me into getting into temptation. Do you? I mean, I really need no help. And I don't think really that's a great translation of that. It, it's almost like God, when I'm tempted, help me overcome the temptation. Because here's what happens. L- look at this verse in James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God doesn't tempt us. We don't need any help. Let me tell you a story. Miriam and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary yesterday. Isn't that nice? Yes. They're applauding for you, honey, uh, because they know. But we had first gotten married. We lived in Fort Worth, Texas. Anybody ever live in Fort Worth? Well, it's hot there. And... Um, they have something called flash floods. It, it, they're really not designed to have a lot of rain, and when they have a lot of rain, it flash floods. It flash floods inside the city, which is odd for me. I'd never seen that before. I'm a Kentucky boy. In Kentucky, we have ditches. You know, we got hills. The water runs off. Um, but in the city of Fort Worth, they have flash floods. I didn't know this. I'd never experienced this. So Miriam and I had just gotten married, and I was heading off to work. And, and we lived kind of out of town, and I was driving into Fort Worth. And so I turned out of our apartment. We had a little apartment, and I turned out of the apartment. And there was water over the road. And in Kentucky, when there's water over the road, you want to know what you do? You drive through it because it, it's not a big deal. But I found out immediately when I lost traction with my car. I could hear my wheels turning. I could hear them turning. I just I was floating. Now, this is really scary because I know where I am. I had just turned out of my apartment. Right beside my apartment, is there's, there's this ravine, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet deep. And, and if I float out of the road, I'm going to end up in the ravine. So I'm looking this way, and I'm going this way, right? And I'm, I'm hitting the gas, and the wheels are spinning. I can hear them. My engine didn't stop. My, my wheels are spinning. I'm at this point a boat, 
with really bad propellers in the back because it was a real-wheel drive car. And I'm, I'm pushing, I'm, I literally rolled the windows down so I could get out if I went over into the ravine. I was already planning for it because that's the way I roll. You know, I'm all about the being prepared. I rolled the windows down. I'm stepping on the gas. And all of a sudden, I caught traction. I, I must have gotten just so far enough, and I got out. It's like, whoo. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you're going, oh, my word, that could, I, could have just, I could have just died. The second thing I thought was, I'm going to tell Miriam, and she's going to have sympathy on me, and that's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, all right, I got through that. Now, normal, sane people go home after this. They park somewhere, they walk home, they find another route. But I had a job, and I needed to get to the work. So I'm going on down toward Fort Worth. And guess what I encountered? Water over the road. Another place up the road. I don't know, a quarter of a mile, there's more water over the road. Would you like to know what I did? I drove into it. Because I'm stupid. I mean, how stupid is that? I remember, I literally, I can see it in my mind's eye right now. I hit the water, and I remember the wave of water going over the top of my car. I hit it that hard. I mean, I was, I was getting to work. And I stopped suddenly, and I, the car never died. It was awesome. And I backed up, and then I went home. It, it took me twice. It took me twice. Because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But here's, what, here's the point. God doesn't have to lead me into temptation. I'm really good at it on my own. And just think about this. I got myself into, you know, God got me out of this bad situation, and what I immediately go into the same situation again. And this is sort of a metaphor for my life, that God gets me out of bad stuff, and sometimes I just go right back into it. And I have a history of that. And I look at myself, and I think to myself, oh my word, how insane are you to do stuff like this? There's this quirky little verse that I kind of like. I kind of like, you know, there's there's some stuff in Scripture that's kind of cool. This is a quirky little verse. As a a dog returns to its vomit. I just like that. Um, So a fool repeats his foolishness. I guess it's quirky and odd, and I like it because it kind of speaks to me. There's this great instruction in 2 Timothy. Flee the evil desires of youth. Flee. It's pretty simple. If I know something is going to tempt me, I flee. Um, Have you ever been chased by a wasp? Anybody? Uh, Do you just stand there and say, I hope the wasp doesn't sting me? What do you do? You run. You run like a crazy person. You run and you do this. And it's great to watch. Uh, uh, but if you're in that moment, if the, if the wasp is chasing you, no fun. Not fun. Everybody else gets a... Gets kind of, we want to video it. We want to put it on YouTube. But, but, the, but you're doing this because you don't want to hit your hair and you're running. And, and that's the meaning of this word. This is zombie apocalypse flea. Like, this is pit bull chasing your bike flea. That, that's what this is. That word, flee the evil desires of youth. And so, if I'm at work and I have a temptation to, to be flirty with somebody, then I don't go by that person. 
And if it's bad enough, I change jobs because this word is that severe. Flee. It's not think about it or kind of not, don't get in the way. No, this is flee. This is get out of Dodge. If I'm tempted to eat too much, I don't go then to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Because what is... Men, men are going to know this. The all-you-can-eat buffet is a challenge to get your money's worth. Is it not? Every, every man. Every man. It is a challenge. Men, I'm going to ask you a question. All men. Ladies, you can watch. But men, when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, do you eat salad? In Anybody? Men? No. No, because that's for chumps. You know what you do? What do you, you eat every piece of meat on that thing. I don't care if it, can I get a witness? I see, I see that hand right there, hallelujah. Yes. We are going to get our money's worth on. Now, and, and here's what, women, here's the deal. We'll take you all, but we're frustrated with you. Because we got to pay the same for you as we do for us. And we're going to get our money's worth. If, if they have to roll me out on a stretcher, I'm getting my money's worth at the all-you-can-eat buffet. But what do, our, what do our wives do? They put lettuce on their plate. You know how much lettuce costs? Nothing. They give them lettuce. They go to the store and say, would you like lettuce here? I mean, it, it is free. It's free. And, and my wife will come back to the, to the table and she'll have you know, lettuce and she'll have like a, like a piece of... Like a piece of chicken the, the size of a quarter, you know, and a, a little scoop of mashed potatoes, and it's like. So now the challenge is I've got to get money's worth for me and her. I've I got to eat twice as much. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the point. If I'm tempted to eat too much, I don't go to the all-you-can-eat buffet because that's a temptation for me. I, I, I've got to learn to flee temptation. If I'm tempted to spend too much, I cut up my credit card. I, I, I put myself in a position where I'm going to be cash only. And that way, if I'm cash only, when I run out of cash, I'm done. And I can stick to that. You have to make a plan. That's what flee the evil desires of youth mean. There are ways to overcome, and you make yourself a plan. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians. Remember that no temptation that comes into your life, are, they're, they're no different from what others experience. We all experience this. That's a cool verse. And God is faithful. He'll keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. You do your part. You flee. God will help you not be over-tempted. You come into agreement. You know, there's... there's, there's you have to do your part. God's going to do his part. But there's something to be said for, I'm going to make a way, I'm going to have a plan to get out of temptation. In 1 Timothy it says, turn away from all these sinful things and work at being right with God. It's not easy, but it can be done. And so, I have a Maybe I have a, you know, a sinning gene. It's in, the, it's in the genes. And that's an explanation, not an excuse. And the second thing is, I put myself in tempting situations and I don't have to do that. So I've got a part to play here. Third thing is this. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and wants to be our guides. And you have to listen. Um, remember before cell phones where 
you have a GPS on your phone, and you can, if you have to get someplace, you just dial it into your phone, right? I mean, who gives, does anybody give directions anymore? Remember directions used to be, well, you go down to Bubba's house, you take a ride. I remember that. I mean, that's how it used to be, but nobody does that anymore. But when we lived in New Mexico a couple years ago, we had some friends that visited us, and they were from Dallas. And in Dallas, you can put any address in, and and your phone will take you right there. But New Mexico is big and broad and wide, and there's not a lot of, you know, there aren't a lot of roads, and sometimes you're not on the beaten path, and you don't always have cell service. And so I had some friends who had visited, and we gave them some direct. I gave them directions, and they were relatively simple. You come out of your hotel, you take a right, that road is 110 or whatever it was, I can't remember now, and you drive down and there's a big sign that says Portalis and you take a right on that road. I mean, it was big, big directions, not, you know, go seven feet and turn left, you know, it was, there was easy, easy directions, easy directions. And, and I looked at them and I'm, as I'm giving them the directions and they are glazed over. Because what they're millennials, and what they were saying is, I'll just put it in my phone, dude. Nobody gives directions. You're a loser because you're giving me directions. And internally, I'm saying I'm not a loser. I'm not. It's New Mexico, chump. And uh, they ain't no cell service at her. You know, that's what you want to say to them. But I, get, I gave them perfect directions. I mean, I, mean, I pat myself, they were great. A monkey could have found this place. That's how, I mean, it was so clear. It was so clear. It was, I could do it blindfolded. I gave them such great directions. You know where they ended up? Not there. Uh, You know, not where I told them to. They ended up 40 miles away because they plugged it into their phone. And you know what their phone said? We're in New Mexico. We have no idea where we are. Uh, You know, we'll take them anywhere. I mean, they were 40, we finally caught up with them, and all they had to do was listen to the directions. All right, so the Holy Spirit will guide us. In fact, look what it says here. When the Helper, when the Holy Spirit comes, He'll show the world the truth about sin. He'll show the world uh, about being right with God. He'll show the world what it is to be guilty. He'll give us directions. And the Holy Spirit becomes kind of a new set of eyes for us. Maybe we're not seeing the temptation that's growing, and we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Hey, 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 hey. This is a flee issue, right? You need to be fleeing this. The other day I stayed in an Airbnb, and that's cool, by the way. I think that's cool. But I, I went, and there was like a little knob that was loose, and so, I, you know, when I was doing my review to them, I didn't do it publicly, but I said, hey, the knob on this thing is loose. And I suspect they just aren't in there, so they don't know. They needed a new set of eyes. Here's what's interesting to me. I could go to my house, and that knob might be loose, and I'll just forget about it because you start to overlook things, and you need a new set of eyes, somebody that will tell you, hey. So when people are going to sell their house, a lot of times their realtor will come in and say, you should fix this and you should fit this. Or somebody will come in and say, this is something that you need to fix in order to make this sell easier. And you knew it, you just forgot it. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of things that we already kind of know a lot of times. Hey, this is something that you're getting too close here. You ought to flee this. Hey, you know what? This is an area where you might want to flee. And we have to listen 
to our God. Now, here's the great news. I'm going to give you some great news. Honestly, the, the, the first part of this sermon, who knows? It, was, it might have been okay. But now this is really, really crazy important stuff. It's really important. We've got to begin to see ourselves as saints and not as sinners. You have to figure out who you are in Christ. And I'm going to try to help you with this. Because how you see yourself will affect what you do, will affect your actions. How you see yourself will affect your actions. When Miriam and I first got married, I had a job at a place called the Psychiatric Institute. I had a job there. I wasn't part of the you know, community. Uh, I had a job there. I want to clarify. Because I know what some of you are thinking. I bet he didn't. Have... No, no, I wasn't in. I was in, but I was working. I was working. I was working there. There was a kid there. And his parents had given him the name Rebel. I'm just, anybody want to guess at why he was in there? He was a rebel. He was living down to his reputation. We use an expression around Christianity. I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And you have to say it like that because it's the southern saying. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now the problem with that particular expression, am I a sinner saved by grace? I'm a saint who's been saved by grace. The Bible never... This is amazing. I, this is amazing. You, should, you need to know this. The Bible never refers to people who've given their lives to Christ as sinners. Ever. In, in fact... People who are unbelievers are called sinners. It, the word is used. It's just used of unbelievers. 330 times it's used of unbelievers. It's never used of believers. Believers are called saints. Believers are called the holy ones, the righteous ones. I mean, it's like these words. And, and we don't see ourselves as that. Because here's what happens. We, we think to be a saint you have to have done something. You know, what do we say? Who do we call saints? Old people that have done nice stuff for a long time, right? Oh, she's a saint. She worked in the nursery for 49 years. She is a saint. Because if you change diapers for 49 years on Sundays, you really, I mean, you, we're going to give you sainthood. But it's as if you have to earn. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Let me show you a couple verses. Now, Paul. This is our boy Paul who wrote the book of, of Romans. He writes to a church in a town called Corinth. And there's one word to describe the church people in Corinth. They are whack. All right? Read 1 Corinthians. They did stuff, seriously, it ought to be on the Lifetime channel. I, I mean, it is what 1 Corinthians did. The people in Corinth, the believers in Corinth were engaged in some crazy stuff. Some sinful stuff. And yet, this is how Paul addresses them. It's, these are whacked out people who are in sin, but they're followers of Jesus. Look at what he calls them. Look at this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ by the, uh, by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, so he's in, identifying himself. Hey, this is who he's writing. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people. The word sanctified, it's not a word we use very often because we don't have a need to use it very often, but this is the meaning of the word sanctified. When there was temple worship, they had articles of 
they had utensils they would use that would be set aside as holy. So they'd go down to the Walmart. They'd need a bowl. I need a bowl to offer an offering. They're going to go to Walmart. They're going to buy this bowl. It's a common bowl. It's a Walmart bowl. It's a bowl anybody can buy. But they would take it to the temple, and they would sanctify it. They would, they would have a, a ceremony where they made this bowl special because now it's going to be used for holy purposes. Something common being made holy for holy purposes. Which sounds a lot like us. The bowl didn't sanctify itself. That's why it says that to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus is the one that makes us holy. He makes us holy. And then it says, called to be his holy people. That, that word, the, the idea around being called is this. Um, if you're invited to a wedding, you receive an invitation. And you get the invitation in the mail and you RSVP because that's polite. I'm going to RSVP. And I'm coming to your wedding. And then when you get to the wedding, a lot of times at the reception, they have a place for you to sit. There might even be a little placard on the table. This is, where, this is your spot. You were called, you were invited, and you have a spot. That's what it means to be holy people. God called us. He invited us into the family to be holy people. And when I start to see myself as holy, it changes everything. My expectation of myself increases. This isn't a guilt thing. This is a, okay, I'm part of royalty. The greatest illustration, there's a guy named Paul George that gave this illustration. I heard it the other day and I thought, oh my word, this, this, I understand this. So I want to share it with you. There's a king. He's in a kingdom. And he pronounces an edict. He says, everyone, every woman who's involved in prostitution, is forgiven. Which is great news if you're a prostitute. And then he, he expands the edict. Not only, not only is she forgiven, all, all the prostitutes are forgiven of prostitution they've done, but also any prostitution they will perform in the future. Stay with me. Now, if you're a prostitute, that kind of sets you free, but it really doesn't help, it doesn't motivate you to live differently, just free. But, if the king comes to the prostitute and he says, I'd like you to become my queen, I, I want to invite you into the family. You're not just going to be part of the family, you're going to be the queen. Well, now everything changed because I don't see myself as a prostitute. I see myself as royalty. And the Bible talks about this a ton in Scripture, how we're adopted into the family. And if you're a part of God's family, there's an expectation of how you live. My daddy used to say to me all the time, remember who you are. Well, you know why he said that? Because I was a vest. I'm a vest. I'm his son. And there was an expectation around that. You, you should behave a certain way. And I, under, I knew what he was talking about. And look at this. There's language of union in Scripture. It's very important. Uh, we're called to holiness. We didn't work for it. He, he calls us into it. And, and look, 
It says in this text, whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. It's the language of union. We're holy people. Now look at this. Look at our verse again. Adam's one sin brings condemnation. Boo, bad, ooh. But, however, but now, things have changed. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life. Not the old life. You're not what you used to be. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. And you sin sometimes, but you're a saint. You're holy people. Again, this isn't a guilt trip thing. Start to, start to live who you are. We're holy people. We're not perfect people. But we have been called into the family of God. And there's an expectation around that. We're called to live a certain way. So now, now... Yeah, I've got the sin gene, but I don't have to live like that. Yeah, yeah, I'm tempted, but I can, I can flee. I have an ability to flee. God gives me the ability to, to get out of that thing. I can listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to guide me. I can listen. I can. I'm part of, I'm part of the Holy Family. In fact, one guy said for, for a Christian to sin... It's temporary insanity. It's temporary insanity. It's like we should never do this. It's temporarily forgetting who we are. It would be like a Clemson fan pulling for South Carolina. I mean, think about that. Who's going to do that? Does that not resonate with you? I mean, really, that should resonate. Um, it's like a South Carolina fan pulling for Clemson. Now, I've been around you people now for two years. I've, I'm sensing some angst. Uh, I just want you to know. Between Clemson fans, South Carolina, y'all are... You should, take an, uh, you should take Kentucky as an example. We love everybody. <laughs> Except Duke. <laughs> and Louisville and Tennessee. There's a few. There's a few. <laughs> you like that, did you? Uh, D. Wayne's like, hey, you don't love people. Uh, well, the point is this. God has called us to be holy people. That he's, he's sanctified us. He's made us, common as we are, into vessels of holiness. We've got to look at ourselves the right way. You, you behave according to how you see yourself. Maybe it's difficult to do the right thing because we forget who we are in Christ. And I'm here today, hopefully, to help you maybe know for the first time or be reminded who you are. We are saints. We are holy in God's sight. The Bible tells us we've been seated with Christ. It's a, I don't even understand all of it. But that's how he sees us. We are part of his family. So, we live up to the family name.
And we can do this. Father, we thank you for loving us, for delivering us, for taking us who are common, those of us who are common, which is all of us, and setting us apart for holy purposes. And help us be reminded this week, like when something happens to us this week, Lord, we, can, we should be able to say, well, you know, in my old life, the way I used to be, I would do this, but now I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the holy family. And there's an expectation, but I'm going to live up to expectations. Lord, help us to see ourselves the way you see us, because I think that would revolutionize our spirits and our hearts and our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.